Happy New Year. Are you kidding me? Isn't that cool? We get to celebrate Christmas as a congregation. We're celebrating New Year's. I'm like, next, Arbor Day, Boxing Day, right here. All right. We're celebrating all the holidays together. You know, every year ad nauseum, you hear the term New Year's resolution. Anybody set any New Year's resolutions already? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Wow, nobody. Good. All right. Because most of you, uh, out of habit, understand that uh, by January the 14th, uh, everyone will have failed their New Year's resolutions. But it doesn't keep our culture and our society from every year uh, setting goals, uh, setting out studies that tell us how uh, people uh, commit to certain goals over others. For example, there is one survey that says 52% of Americans are committing as one of their New Year's resolutions to exercise more. Is that anybody in here? In your mind, you're like, I'm going to exercise more. I did. I've already exercised twice before the first just to get a head start on the first. So it's, that was one of my commitments. Uh, 50% have made a commitment to eat healthier. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, come on. Need some of that. All right. Uh, 40% uh, want to commit to losing weight. No hands for that one. No, but anyway. All right. Uh, 39% want to save more money. That's, that's something, isn't it? Save more money. Uh, 37% want to spend more time with family and friends. 20% want to spend less time on social media. That number should go up, shouldn't it? Social media, what a trap. Uh, <laughs> That's in my opinion. Okay, uh, 19% want to reduce more stress on the job, and then 19% also want to spend less money on living expenses. You know, uh, these are all fine and good, but you know, one of the problems that you see with every one of these resolutions is they're very temporary. Every single one of them. Not only do we fail them within 14 days of making them. Uh, we also understand that there comes a time in our life where uh, these don't matter anymore. Uh, and I don't mean that it doesn't matter to exercise or to stay in shape or be healthy, but there's going to come a time where we stand before the God of the universe. And the last thing that you're going to be thinking of is, man, I really should have lost those couple extra pounds now that I think about it in front of the holy God of the universe, you know. Or, you know, you're probably you're not thinking, man, I shouldn't have ate that piece of chocolate before I got here. You know, you're not because those are temporary. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a time where those things are going to be the last things on your mind. And there's going to be much greater things that you have at the forefront of your life. And the Bible says that one of those areas of particular importance that you're going to have at the front of your mind uh, when you are face to face with the God of the universe is your own holiness. That is what's going to be at the forefront of your mind as you stand before God, even as uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah stood before God, uh, a prophet, someone set apart and chosen for uh, ministry and to serve God. He is before the throne room in Isaiah 6, and uh, he doesn't say, hey God, so glad you chose me. Uh, He says, woe is me. I'm an unclean man in the midst of an unclean people. I mean, that's, that was what was on the forefront of his mind. The minute that he saw the presence of God, it was simply, I am real ungodly. I'm real unholy. And so I posit that this year we should forego any of these temporary, any of these fleeting New Year's Eve resolutions. And I think that we should uh, commit to training ourselves 
for godliness, which Scripture teaches us if we would train ourselves for godliness, it guarantees benefits for now and for eternity. Think about that. That's the text that we're going to jump into that Pastor Evan just read. You can go ahead and flip open is 1 Timothy 4. Go ahead and open your Bibles there, 1 Timothy 4. It says as much that although there are many things that we can commit to short-term, that have short-term benefits, uh, if you can actually commit to the goal and carry it out, it'd be good for a while. But it's going to turn out that they're not things that we should have ever prioritized above godliness anyway. But there is this thing, godliness, that Scripture teaches me has benefits for here and now, just like these other things. They have benefits that are going to be good for me, helpful for me now. But there's going to be benefits that are everlasting, eternal. As I stand before God, I may not think about uh, my weight loss or my, my diet, but what I'm surely going to be thinking about is, man, woe is me, an ungodly man with amongst a group of ungodly people. I don't just mean you, I just mean society. I do mean you, you and me both. But what I, what I want us to do before we jump into that, because woof, we're talking about godliness and holiness and living for that, we need to define a couple of terms. All right, I want to define a couple of terms. I'd like you to write them down because it's going to be good for you in this sermon, but it's also going to be good for you when it comes to the rest of your life. Uh, godliness. What is godliness? It's a good question, isn't it? We always think we know the answer to a question until it's asked of us to define what it means, don't we? So what is godliness? Well, I have a Greek-English lexicon, one of the ones that I use primarily. It, it defines godliness this way. An appropriate belief, an appropriate practice of a commitment and our obligation relating to our relationship with God. Right? That's a simple definition of godliness. It's the right, under, the right knowledge and the right practice concerning our obligation and commitment with our relationship with God. That's just a simple definition. There's a synonym. Uh, we do read about godliness in Scripture, but there's a synonym that we hear about an awful lot in Scripture that is the same as godliness, and it's the word holiness. And the word holiness comes from the Greek word hagios, which that's important for you and I because we, you and I are a, a version of hagios, the holy ones, right? To be uh, a part of the church is to be a part of the ecclesia, those who have been called out, those who have been called out of their sins and placed into Christ, you hear. So we are hagios. That's literally the, what Christians are. We are the ones who are set apart, those who have been consecrated and set apart for a holy purpose. So our lives are all about holiness and all about being set apart. Now, there are two ways in the Christian life that we are set apart. We're set apart for something, and we're set apart to something. And this is the final two definitions I want you to write. The first one, the, in one way that you are holy, is called your positional holiness. You need to write that down, your positional holiness. And your positional holiness is simply defined this way. It's the holiness or the righteousness of Christ uh, that has been put on you or you've been clothed with as you responded to God through turning from your sins and placing your trust in Christ and what he has done for you at the cross to absolve you from the penalty of sin. Right? That's positional holiness. That's uh, another word you may know is the word justification. So positional holiness is simply justification. You've been justified before the eyes of God through Jesus Christ. When God looks at you in Christ, he sees Christ. And therefore, the penalty of your sins has been paid for in Christ. 
Now, that's one we talk about a lot, isn't it? And that's one, uh, as a matter of fact, as I was thinking about through all these songs, almost every one of these songs was talking about our positional holiness. And churches often talk about positional holiness, but one, uh, churches often fail at preaching and teaching that is very biblical, and we'll jump into it very explicitly this morning, is a place called progressive holiness. And that's what you need to write down in your notes. Progressive holiness uh, is, is different in that you can define it this way. You ought to define it this way because this is how the Bible defines it. Progressive holiness, or you might have heard of the word sanctification or progressive sanctification, is simply this. The cooperation between a Christian and the Spirit of God that works together to conform you into the likeness of Christ as we await his return. Did you hear that? That's the definition of progressive holiness. It's the cooperation between the Christian. You heard the big important word, cooperation. It means there's a relationship between the way that we ought to live in conjunction with the power of the Spirit of God in our lives that works together to conform us into the image of Christ as we await the return of Christ. Now, important to you and me is the fact that so much of Scripture is talking about our progressive holiness. As a matter of fact, almost all of the New Testament letters are talking explicitly about your progressive holiness. Now, of course, Romans are talking about your positional holiness. Ephesians, it talks about how you have been positionally made holy. But you know what the rest of those books are talking about? Your progressive holiness. Holiness. After you get through the first half of Romans and the first half of Ephesians, the rest of it's talking about how we progress in holiness through cooperating with the power of the Spirit of God, which is so important because, like I said earlier, even good churches, even good Bible teaching churches fall short at teaching one another how to live in light of God's desire for you and I to be progressively holy for us to, as we move in our lives, as we get closer to the day of redemption, the day of our death, the day of the glorification of Christ as he comes in and takes us to be with him, as we get closer to that, we ought to be progressing in Christ-likeness, which is where we find ourselves as we're reading in 1 Timothy. And when we read 1 Timothy, here's the context. You have two people, two main people. You have Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's aging, very old at this point. Uh, he knows his, his death is looming uh, and has his protege, his disciple, Timothy, who is now have been called to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And you remember Ephesus, right? That's a church in Asia Minor, a very prominent church in the New Testament times. As a matter of fact, there is a letter in the New Testament named after the church in Ephesus. So very important ministry post that Timothy was overseeing, and Paul was teaching Timothy in his last couple of recorded letters uh, how you lead and pastor a church. These are the things that are most important as you lead this congregation, young Timothy. And so before we get to 1 Timothy 4, I want you to look at 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15. It's the entire theme of why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to young Timothy. In verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you, one ought to behave in the household of God. You see, when it comes to the holiness that we're called to, you cannot detach 
our relationship with God from the behavior that is right for the Christian, right? We don't like to talk about the word behavior, do we? Especially in our society and unfortunately in many of our churches. But Paul's entire theme when he's writing here is I am coming soon, I hope, but even if I delay, here's what you need to know. Here's the most important thing you need to know. What I'm trying to teach you is that how people ought to behave in the household of God, that there is a right, righteous, an appropriate and proper way for Christians who have been positionally holy, who have been made holy in Christ, that now there's a way they ought to now behave, a way that they ought to live their life in conjunction with the holiness of God. And this is, this is why, you'll read the rest of it, which is the church of the living God. Why, why is there a way in which we ought to live when it comes to the church, the congregation? I'm not saying that you can live a one way out there, but when you walk through those doors, which is what most people think the church is, the building, then you have to act another way. That's called hypocrisy, and that ought not to be named among the people of God. What we're talking about is the, the gathered church, the people, each one of us as we're part of the church. Here's what we are. We're the church of the living God. Well, of course, if we're representing the living God, there is a way in which we ought to, in our positional holiness, be progressively like him in our lives, in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our priorities. Now, it says about this church of the living God, it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So when it comes to God, the church is a foundational piece of how the world is going to know about the holiness of God, which is of utmost importance, isn't it? When it comes to understanding who God is, we must understand that he is holy and set apart. Well, how is a world going to know those things? By a church that is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress are the things that can keep a, a, a building steady, that you can build on it. That, that which people can go to and say, I know that I can find truth and I can find consistency in this place. Now, that's the reason why Paul is so adamant about the way that we ought to live in progressive holiness as Christians, because we're the church of the living God. We're a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If people want to find truth, where are they going to find it? They're going to find it here. When people want to know the questions to life's biggest, or the answers to life's biggest questions, where are they going to go? They're going to come here. And there ought to be, and there needs to be, and there better be, because of a biblical command to do so, Christians who are already putting those answers to practice. And where you find a church not putting the Bible to practice, you find the church that is not upholding the commandment to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And therefore, there's a commitment that you and I not only be positionally holy, but that we walk in progressive holiness after God. Now, that brings us to our main text. So let's jump in. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 in 1 Timothy 4. Paul says to young Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, he's got an immediate context, and we'll get to that. But what you need to know is, what does this mean, irreverent? That's a word we don't use a lot. It just means ungodly and worldly. So you need to have nothing to do with ungodly and unworldly myths, things that may or may not be true, things that you can speculate on that you're never going to arrive at the truth, uh, have nothing to do with those, especially the ones that are ungodly, especially the ones that have nothing to do with the Word of God, which... If it's a myth, odds are it has nothing to do with the Word of God because the Word of God is not a myth, it's the truth. And so we ought to understand if it doesn't have to do with the Word of God, if it doesn't apply to my life in concert with what God's Word says, it says have nothing to do with it. 
Now, it's ungodly and worldly, but it's also silly. You know that's a word that the Bible uses, a silly? Uh, That word in in Greek is kind of like saying a wives' tale. Or if you want to get really to the foundation of it, it's things uh, ungodly old women would sit and talk about as they're doing nothing in their lives, which that's not what, according to Titus 2, what our older gals are doing at our church, right? The older gals at our church are doing what? They're teaching and leading younger women, aren't they? See, to be a Titus 2 older gal, we can't be silly, okay? And as a matter of fact, this is not just to do with the older women in our church. This has to do with everyone in our church. If we're going to be the kind of Titus 2 people, which you don't know Titus 2, you need to jot it down and read it later. But the commitment that you and I have to serious discipleship, and really, I shouldn't even say serious relationship with God, just a relationship with God, right? If you're committed to a relationship with God, we got to do away with irreverent, ungodly, and silly myths that have nothing to do with our relationship with God or God's desire to see lost people saved. Now, there are a couple of instances that Paul is addressing specifically, and I want to take you to those. If you just look up a couple of verses, uh, verses 1 through 4, 1 Timothy 4, it actually says what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, it says the Spirit expresses, expressively says, he's talking about the Spirit as he's speaking through Scripture, says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's a lot of spiritual jargon if you don't understand what he's talking about. Simply this, that every deceitful thing in our life can come from the fact that we're being led astray by the, the desire to sin and the desire to follow after Satan. And so therefore, any deceit in your life is going to be the deceit of your sin and Satan coming into your life and then the teachings of demons. Well, it isn't necessarily that people are talking about practices of the occult. We're talking about either the truth is from God or it's a lie from Satan. I mean, you see how simple this is. You don't have to over-spiritualize this text to realize we're talking about either the wisdom from God or the wisdom of the world that comes from Satan. And they're saying, plainly, that people have left the faith because they've devoted themselves to lying and false teaching. Through the insincerity of liars, like they're not even being sincere about it. They're just, it's the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And this is what they were talking about particularly at verse 3. These people, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. This is a practice in that time called asceticism. And you don't have to know what all that means just to know this, that they're saying if you follow uh, the rules of asceticism, you're going to be better or you're going to earn favor with God or you're, gonna be, you're just going to be a better human being that is going to somehow raise you above other people and you'll have this hidden knowledge and this secret understanding and ascetic practices uh, were, were big, especially in the first century there in Rome, because people want to know, if I, if I reject these things, I then have power over them, which is not really what the gospel's at all talking about when it's talking about our desire for holiness. But this is what they were trying to teach. Because as a matter of fact, here's what Paul has to say about rejecting those things. He's like, listen, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Isn't that the, isn't that the truth? Right? You know, everyone's supposed to get married, do you understand, in our, in our culture. A marriage is not just a Christian institution. Now, it is an institution created by God, but it's also a universal mandate, which means everybody can get married. All cultures should get married. Now, there are ways in which we ought to get married. Christians get married to Christians. Non-Christians get married to non-Christians. That's biblical. But the mandate is still universal. 
But there's a way in which we see marriage of those who believe and know the truth that helps us understand that God created it and it is good and it should be enjoyed with thanksgiving, right? There's a way in which we ought to partake in marriage. And even when we think about food, and Peter had this exact situation in the book of Acts, didn't he? When he was trying to say that certain food was not appropriate for him to take part of, and God set him straight pretty quick and said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And so just looking at scripture, we can see how the ascetic practices of these people in the first century were not in line with the word of God at all. Now, you may have glazed over for a half a second talking about history, but get back in here. Because here's the reality. It is not just about marriage and food. In our culture, people try to say things that the Bible says that they don't know, they don't know at all. Right? There are things that people say about things that we deal with uh, that the Bible says something completely different. Uh, I'll give you one for example. We live in a culture that says when you're in a serious relationship, it would be wise for you to move in together for a little while to see if you guys are compatible, right? It'd be a shame if you guys were married and you realized that you couldn't get along. How many of you have heard something like that before, right? That's, that is called worldly and godless, silly myths, okay? Because here's what I know when we talk about the Word of God. The Word of God says, accordingly, Ephesians 5 is a particular one I love to go to, uh, when two people are Christians and they both have the Spirit of God working through them, they are commanded and called to do a couple of things, really important. One, uh, not to consider themselves more significant than others. Uh, husbands ought to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. Wives ought to honor and respect and submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Right? These are things the Bible tells me to do. So it really doesn't amount to the hill of beans if I don't get along, because here's the good news. The spirit at work in me is going to progressively sanctify me. And if I'm not getting along at the beginning of my marriage, God is going to work in my life so that we begin getting along for the glory of God in our marriage. So therefore, I don't have to shack up for a while to figure out if we're going to work. Because the Bible tells me if two godly people, if a godly man and a godly woman get together and they get married and they give their marriage to God, guess what's going to happen? They're going to get along because that's what progressive sanctification looks like in a marriage. Worldly silly myth to say that we have to shack up before we're married to see if we can get along. When the Bible tells me complete opposite of that. That's just one example. Really, you can boil it all down this way. Uh, Irreverent, silly myths it is really uh, our attempt in the world to make decisions without thoughtful inspections of, quote-unquote, what does the Bible say about that? See, that's what an irreverent, silly myth is. It's people who aren't taking into account what the Bible says about that. If I'm shacking up with somebody and I'm living with them trying to figure out if I'm going to make it work, I first should have had another conversation. What does God's word say about that? Right? If I'm seeing my children disobeying the Lord, even at a young age, I can't say, well, what, is, what does the world teach me? Let me Google how I can discipline my children. I need to say, well, what does the Bible say about that? You know? Or whatever it is. What church do I need to go to? What does the Bible say the kind of church you need to go to? Not, let me Google the closest one to me. See, the problem is, is we need to do this, and it's point number one. We need to get familiar with Scripture. Because the problem is we're not familiar with Scripture. And so we ought to get familiar with Scripture. If we want to live in light of progressive holiness, that is, we want to walk after the Lord, we have to start getting familiar with the words that he told us. We have to start understanding what God has said, how God desires us to follow after him, and we ought to know it. 
We ought to have it in our lives in such a way where it is given to us liberally, applicationally, in a way that we can apply it to our lives. You ever research how to get in shape? I have. It's wild, isn't it? That's a whole universe, a whole universe trying to figure out how to get in shape. Uh, I was looking up some... I was looking up some articles the other day, and the first one said, you want to lower your BMI? I'm like, sure. I don't know what that is, but I want to lower it, whatever it is. And, and then, I, like, this other article is like, first, you need to remember the first law of thermal dynamics. I'm like, thermal what? Like, like I just want to lose some pounds, you know? Uh, and then it said, you need to then increase your macros. I'm like, a macro? Is that like macaroni and cheese? Like, am I, like... Uh, and it says, then you're going to want more amino acids. And I'm like, okay, I thought that was bad for you. Acid wasn't good. Uh, but it said, so you need to focus on complete proteins. I'm like, I wasn't aware there were incomplete proteins, you know. And it says, cut out empty carbohydrates. I'm like, I'm sure I know what that is, but I couldn't pick that up out of a lineup. Uh, and it says, then you're going to need to start doing progressive overloading workouts. And I'm like, I feel like my whole life is already progressively overloaded. I'm like, now you want me to like exercise that way? And it says, then mix in some aerobic and anaerobic activity. And I'm like, all right, okay. And it says, then you need to create a reasonable caloric deficit. Then boom, you're skinny. And I'm like, I'm like, I can, I can't do that. Right? I mean, I'm like, I, like, but that's when you look up. Is that not what you read when you look up how to get in shape? You're like, I need a PhD in how to lose weight if I'm going to do this. And and I know it's silly. And I know, like, you know, if you're one of those physical trainers in here, you're like, it's way more simple than that. Well, that's what your pastor says too, because it can be if you're just familiar with what the Bible is teaching you about how to walk in holiness. It sounds real, real hard when you're trying to figure it out on your own. Or when you don't even, you're not even familiar with the word of God and you're like, I could never do that. Well, you never could outside of the power of the Holy Spirit and his word. You couldn't. But there's good news. If you're familiar with the word of God, you can. And it's not as complicated as you make it seem because it's not up to you. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And it is God's desire for your sanctification. As a matter of fact, it says that in 1 Corinthians. Here is God's will for you, your sanctification. God's will for you is that you walk in holiness, not just that you are positionally holy, but that you are conformed into the image and likeness of Christ as you live out your Christian life. And here's the problem with uh, holiness, and here's the problem with working out. Like you're not going to stumble into a healthy lifestyle. Like you realize that. Like you're never going to wake up one day and look in the mirror and say, "Wow, I accidentally look great today." You know, like you're just you're not. I mean, every day you look up and you're like, "Man, I really messed up," and you know what you did to get there. Uh, and the same thing works when it comes with your, your holiness. Like, you're not going to stumble into holiness. Like, you're not going to wake up one day and say, Phew, man, I love living for the righteousness of God. And like, I just love how my whole life is just looking just like Christ. It's like, no, as a matter of fact, you can probably look at your life, and when you look in the mirror, you're like, man, my life looks nothing like the Word of God tells me that my life should look like if I were following Christ. It's because you can't stumble into holiness. It's something that you are training It's something that you are preparing for. As a matter of fact, you can jot this scripture down. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says something about our need to get familiar with scripture. Our need to be trained by it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God. So all of it. You're wondering how much of the Bible was God's word? Every bit of it right there. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's good for something is what it says. It's profitable. And here's what it's profitable for. For teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, and listen to this last one, for training in righteousness. Did you know that's what the Bible is here to do? It's here to train us in how to live a life of progressive holiness, hear me, through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's training you to live a progressively holy life. That's what Scripture is doing. And for what end? To what end? Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The reason that we need to be familiar with Scripture is because it's going to teach us. It's going to reprove us, which means it's going to convict us. It's going to convict. I mean, don't you feel convicted? Did this sermon make you feel a little convicted? Me too. I've been working on it all week, so put yourself in my shoes. I'm very convicted this week. Uh, It's there to convict me of my sin, to correct me from my sin, and to train me to live rightly for the Lord. That's what Scripture is supposed to do. When you look at Scripture and you familiarize yourself with Scripture, that's what it's going to do. And it may be uncomfortable, but it's to an end. It's to complete you and equip you for the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. That's the good news about your progressive holiness. If you want to be useful for God, you need to be walking with God. If you want to do big things for God, you need to be living for God, and you do that through following him and cooperating with the Spirit to be progressively holy. Now, I don't want you to mistake this either, that being a Christian, that I'm not just saying nominally a Christian or you're a Christian because your grandma was a Christian. I'm saying you're a Christian because you've turned from your sins, you've placed your trust into Christ, that that's that's what a Christian is. But even that... Christ-likeness is not simply about not doing bad things. You understand, right? Not doing bad things, that's just, yeah, that's just part of being a citizen in the world. Now, the problem is about the Christian faith is you recognize as a Christian that people are incapable of not doing bad things, of not not doing bad things. Double negative, that's a positive, okay? All right, we know that the whole world is going to miss the mark all the time. But we have now tried to create, within the Christian faith, uh, this theme of saying, well, I just got to stop doing those bad things I was doing. And if I stop doing the bad things, then that means I'm doing my job as a Christian. It's like, no, that, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Like, yes, in part, being a Christian means that you need to forsake sin and you need to pursue God. But you have to include that second part, that it's not just about not doing bad things. It's about pursuing a lifestyle that pleases God. It's not saying, I don't want to do these bad things. It's asking God, God, what are the good things? And you can know the good things because you're getting familiar with Scripture, and he tells you what those things are. And so we can't just say, I am being progressively sanctified simply because I stopped doing bad things. We have to ask ourselves, are we doing the things that please God? Not just the things, not just did we stop doing the things that didn't please God. Here's what Paul has to say about that. Look at the rest of verse 7. Look at 1 Timothy, the rest of verse 7 in chapter 4. You have nothing to do with these silly myths, have nothing to do with these irreverent silly myths. Here's what you do instead, verse 7b. Rather, you need to train yourself for godliness. You know that word train? comes from the Greek word gymnazo, which, yeah, sounds just like uh, the word gymnasium, uh, where some of you have nightmares of the worst things that ever happened to you in the gym. All right, gymnazo, it, it is meant to be a word picture of this is a place where physical activity happens and strenuous effort happens in my life to produce something within me physiologically. And so therefore, he's saying you need to train yourself. It's a discipline. You need to discipline yourself for godliness. In verse 8, 
He says, for while bodily training is of some value, and he's not discounting the fact that you should try to live a healthy life. You should put in a plan to do all those things. But he's saying so many, much of our world wants to focus on those things. And what Paul's really saying here, contrary to people's thoughts, of, see, Paul said we need to work out. No, he's saying, listen, that is of temporary value and it's fleeting. But he says something different about godliness. He's like, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of a value in every way. You think getting in shape is important? Being godly and walking in holiness is of utmost importance. Infinitely more valuable than working out, getting a six-pack, fitting into those old jeans and that other t-shirt you used to wear. Godliness is of value in every way. And here's what it says about every way. It holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. That's what I love, because here's the reality of my holiness. I'm not going to stand before God on that day and say, I wish I'd have lost a few more pounds. This is awkward, you know. You know or you're not going to stand before God and say, I really wish I wouldn't have ate that chocolate bar before I'm standing here right now. What you're going to do is you're going to say, like Isaiah, woe is me. And what's going to matter from now and for eternity is how did I live my life as Christ saved me until I got to this point where I'm at right now? And so we ask, okay, in what ways is godliness profitable for here and now? Well, I just took you to the verse earlier. You don't have to go back, but just remember again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You being trained in righteousness by the word of God, what is it going to do? It's going to complete you and equip you for every good work. Like, don't you want to be useful for God? Romans teaches us how to be useful to God. To be useful to God means I need to be a clean vessel prepared for God to use. There are so many of us that live our life, and, and, and some of us that are positionally holy. Some of you in here are really Christians who aren't pursuing progressive holiness. And the problem with that is you sit and you lay down at night and you're like, I feel bad for my sin. I'm, being, I, I'm, never, I'm not doing anything for the Lord. And you're being convicted and you can't even connect the dots of why you feel that way. Because the Bible teaches us that holiness is a prerequisite for God to use us as instruments for righteousness. If you want to be used by God to do great things, your life needs to be living in holiness. Does that mean you never make a mistake? No. Does that mean you never sin? Okay, no, it doesn't, all right? I'm not even discounting the fact that there may be small seasons of your life where, where you have sin and you need the church, you need community to help you work through that. But what I'm going to say is your profitability for the kingdom of God will be greatly mitigated by the fact that you're living in sin. Think about it this way. When you see pastors living in sin, is that fruitful for the kingdom or, or, or a problem? Okay. All right, when you, see, when you see people who say they're Christians and yet their marriages are terrible, is that good or bad? All right, you don't think great about God, you think less about God, don't you? Hopefully not you as a Christian, but you understand that's what the world says, right? So you, you have to agree that when we aren't living in progressive holiness, it isn't good for the advancement of the gospel and isn't good for the glory of God. And so we must understand that us walking and training for godliness is very, very important. And so we understand that there is a temporary benefit, and it's in the positive is simply this. We get to be a part of the advancement of the gospel here. We get to be a part of creating kingdom outposts as we await for the Lord to come back in glory. We get to be a part of that. It's a privilege that we get to be a part of that. And God wants to use every Christian 
who has prepared themselves for ministry, has prepared themselves for the will of God to be useful in that. That's the good news. I mean, that's a good thing. That's a blessing. That's a privilege. But there's also benefit for, for the life to come. Uh, briefly, look down at verse 10. Just briefly. Verse 10 of 2 Timothy 4, or 1 Timothy 4, sorry. It says this, this is why we work, this is why we strive, this is why we toil, because we have our hope set on the living God. Well, here's the eternal benefit of our holiness here, that we are living right now in light of eternity, that we have our hope and our focus set on the living God. Do you hear that? The living God. That's like people say, well, why do I live a holy life if Christ saved me? Because I have my hope set on the living God who says he's coming back who says he's going to judge every wicked and evil thing, and far be it for me to be attached to any evil and wicked thing, and Christ is coming back to usher in his kingdom, to rule and to reign in justice and righteousness and peace forevermore, and I get to be a part of that. So yeah, I'm living right now for what Christ is bringing here. What, is, what does the Lord's Prayer say? Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So there is a real commitment, even in the Lord's Prayer, that Christians be praying and living the will of heaven in my life right now. And I'm going to tell you, there's no more holy place in the, war, in the universe, in all of time and space, in all of history, than heaven. And if that's God's will that I would live that way here, how important is it for you and I to live in light of progressive holiness? of utmost importance. That's why I want you to write it down this way. Point number two, you need to pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. We talk about training, and that's why I say pursue, because it is something you're, you're training towards. It's something you're working towards. And you're like, you just said work with my salvation. No, no, no. Positional holiness, which is a gift from God. Well, they're both gifts from God, but it's something you can't earn. It's something that you cannot have by meritorious acts. Progressive holiness is something you train for and something you work towards. You cooperate with the Spirit of God in your life to conform you into the image of Christ. But we need to pursue godliness. And, and I want you to understand, this is why I said this is a gift, but sometimes we forget this is a gift. It's a gift that you have the privilege to be conformed into the image of Christ. Think about this. Only people who can pursue holiness are people who have been positionally holy. The only people that have the privilege of living a life of godliness and holiness are people that Christ has called out of their darkness and out of their sin and placed them into himself. That is it. Put it to you this way, because I, I never want you to look at the pursuit of godliness and the pursuit of holiness as a drudgery, because you know what's drudgery? Your sin life. That's drudgery. Let's look at your life. Why don't we take the things that you're thinking about right now, the things that your, your sins and the darkness in your life, the skeletons in your closet, and let's throw them right here on the stage in your mind. That's drudgery, isn't it? That's painful. That's hurtful. That's traumatic. Those things are what's put you in so many of the places in your life where you never wanted to be. You know where holiness gets you? and all the places you never deserved to be that Christ has brought you into because of his gift of salvation and his gift of holiness for you. And so how much more should I run away from these things and run after those things? So it's not a drudgery, it's a gift and it's a privilege that I have the opportunity to be sanctified, to grow in my holiness. 
So we ought to pursue godliness and understand it as a gift. Four ways you can do that. Four Ps. You, need to, uh, you want to pursue whole, uh, godliness, you need to do four things. Plan. Right? Uh, was it, uh, who was it? Franklin? No. What's the guy who made the light bulb? Tom? No, that's the other guy. No, there's another guy. No, no, he definitely did, but there's another dude I'm thinking about. Didn't have to do with light bulbs, I don't think. Okay. Anyway, he said something like this. He said, uh, he said, if you will not plan to succeed, you will plan to fail. Who is that? You're like, you don't know either. It could have been Thomas Edison. You wouldn't have known. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you need to plan. If you don't plan to succeed, you're going to plan to fail. And that's the reality. That's, again, like I was saying earlier, you're not just going to wake up in the morning and say, man, look at my holiness that I have on right now. Like, you're not because you didn't plan to live that kind of life, which means you need to do things like you got to set boundaries. I'm saying set godly boundaries. I'm not saying go read all the books on boundaries in the world. A lot of the books that we have on boundaries are not godly at all. They're telling you to prioritize yourself and make life about you and don't draw lines around you that don't allow you to give of yourself the way that God gave of himself in Christ. But that's a whole other sermon. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> all right. Set godly boundaries. And that's more for you than other people. It's more about you understanding your proclivities and your sin nature and your temptations and setting boundaries that don't even get you near those things. And then on top of that, it's you and I understanding that we got to handle our problems with planning. Like, you know, whatever your issue is, maybe your issue is alcohol. Okay, well, let's not go to restaurants that are very public in their display of alcohol. And I know in New Braunfels, that's very difficult, isn't it? All right? But I get it. But what you want to do is you're more serious about your holiness than you are about looking cool or not trying to cause a stink. You know, the, probably one of the most convicting things that you could do when your friends want to take you to a place like that, if this is your issue, or if this is anybody in your group's issue, because the Bible says about that, do not make your other brothers stumble in sin. So when there is brothers in your group that are really tempted by alcohol, and you recognize that you're going to a place where alcohol is a thing, how convicting would it be when one brother looks at the other brothers and says, hey, in the pursuit of godliness through the power of the Spirit, I would love us to reconsider and go somewhere else for the sake of godliness. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, you laugh because you're like, I've never heard that. Yeah, you ought to. You ought to hear that more because that's the call that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to help one another in holiness and godliness. Fill in the blank with anything else. Gossip. I think I'm getting to that one. Oh, yeah, I'm getting there. Next, prepare, okay? Plan, prepare. Okay, you can plan and never prepare, you understand. I know a lot of people have got a lot of great plans. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people in here who's got a great plan to work out this year, and you got no plan to make it happen, okay? And the problem is you can plan and never prepare, when it comes to the pursuit of godliness in our lives, we need to prepare for it. It's not just something, we, yeah, of course, you need to plan it out, but you've got to prepare for it, which means you need the tools necessary. You need to get the tools that are going to help you pursue godliness. Two, two ways, or two topics, two subjects. Gossip, that's one of them, isn't it? Gossip is a big one. A lot of people like to wrap their gossip in a, a, what they call a prayer request, and <laughs> you're laughing because you know it, okay? Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, so-and-so, they're dealing with a lot of marital problems. I hear them, they tell me, I saw some, read some texts, they're yelling at each other, saying some really ungodly things, and you should pray for them, okay? You need to pray for them. If you want to talk about it with me later, we'll talk about it, we'll grab a coffee. Uh, it's called gossip, okay? And you need tools that help you not gossip. 
Okay, there are tools out there that will help you not gossip. For instance, when you hear people start talking about other people, you need to walk away. That's a tool. It's called your feet. Okay? Great, great tools. All right? They even make shoes for them to protect them. All right? You need to be good at walking away from gossip. You need to be good at walking away from opportunities where you can sin using your words and your language to hurt people and defame the name of God. I didn't leave everyone else out either. Uh, the pursuit of holiness in your struggle with lust and pornography. There are legitimate tools out there that keep you protected and insulated from those things. There are website browser tools. Right? There, there are literally ways, there are parent tools that help you wade through websites and wade through and keep you accountable on things you ought not to be messing around with. There are tools and it's one thing to plan, yeah, I'm going to need to do that someday. It's another thing to do it, to prepare and gather the tools to help you pursue godliness. That's your second P. Your third P is you need to partner up. Partner up, that's called community. Right? You need accountability. You need encouragement. And now that's found in community. You need to partner up. That's what I love about when you have tools and then you give tools to your community to help you be holy, and they have tools to help you be holy, and then our church becomes a community where people are pursuing godliness, that's a place, right? Instead of people coming in our room in here, and they sit down, and you're struggling with secret sin, you're, you're struggling with secret vices and secret struggles, and we're all just going to struggle with them right here, and we're all going to clinch until we can get out of here, and they're all going to go live our own lives outside without pursuing godliness, and then we become unfruitful for the kingdom of God versus all of us together pursuing holiness because we planned and prepared and we're partnering up and we're doing it together. Didn't that sound fun? Didn't that sound great? Don't you think, man, my marriage is going to be better in 2023, right? Man, my children, they're going to be a lot more loving towards me because I'm a lot more disciplining, narrying, disciplining, and caring towards them. Because I'll tell you what your, your kids don't want. Your kids don't want you to tell them yes every time. They want you to love them enough to lead them in the right way. All right? And you know how you're going to do that? By pursuing godliness. Because any other way you're going is not going to lead your children down the right way. But you need to partner up. Finally, your final P, you need to persevere. I get this, man. And it's, it's the same when you work out, but it's definitely the same in your holiness, is you have to persevere. You're going to fall. You're going to fall, but the point of the matter is that you would repent from sin, and you're continually persevering in holiness. That means you're going to stay consistent, and you don't let failure derail you. I'm going to say, okay, even if and when I fall, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to continue, because that's what persevering is. Second Thessalonians 3.13, do not grow weary in doing good. The reality of our lives is that we cannot grow weary when it comes to our pursuit of holiness and our pursuit of godliness. Those are your four Ps. And I know I, I, I didn't get it last service. I may not get it this service, but I know there are people out there, maybe you're listening to this online months from now, uh, but you're going to say, Pastor, well, I thought my faith is all about abiding in Christ. You're telling me about all of these things I got to do for holiness, but what about just abiding? That's what I need to do is just abide in Christ. And I'm saying, yes, as a matter of fact, you need to abide in Christ. That is everything about what your faith is about. But People who say that miss the context of what Jesus was saying when he was saying, abide in me. To prove that, I want to flip you to the verse. Go to John 15. John 15 is the pivotal, paramount verse when it comes to abiding in Christ and what that means. Unfortunately, we live in a world and live in a culture that abiding 
in Christ is just me sitting in some way with Christ with no expectations for my life and somehow I can be in the presence of Christ without actually having to do anything with the presence of Christ. But this is what Jesus has to say in John 15 about people abiding in him. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So number one, when I'm a part of Christ, that means I'm grafted in, especially as a Gentile, right? I'm grafted in because he's the vine and I'm the branch. If I'm not bearing fruit, he cuts it off. Well, that's just a proof of there are people who say they're Christians and they're not, okay? So they're going to be cut off because they, even though they say, Lord, Lord, they had never turned from their sins and placed their trust in the Christ. But listen to this. Even if you are a Christian in here, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it. Like, he doesn't even leave you alone when you're abiding with him. Like, the closer you get to Christ, the more you'd be like, ow, 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 yeah, ow, you know? Uh, because he starts cutting those unfruitful parts of your life out, and it's still painful. So even just where we are right now, abiding in Christ sounds a lot less like the world tells me it is, and a lot more of what this text is telling me. When I'm abiding in Christ, he doesn't keep me the same. Because when I abide in Christ, he's conforming me into his image. That which he has, he is giving to me. And if he's going to give me what he has, he's got to take away the things that make me not like him. So he's going to prune me that I may do what? Bear more fruit. Already, verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I love this. Already you're clean. Already you are positionally holy. Already you're that. That's great. You're already justified. You're already saved of no work on your own. But listen to the rest of it. Even so, verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Already in verse 4, what is the context of abiding? Why do we abide in Christ? You tell me. What does it say? That you would bear fruit, right? That's uh, abiding in Christ has everything to do with you bearing fruit and what is bearing fruit? Then he's producing the things that you ought to be producing because you are a Christian. And I see a pecan tree. It produces pecans because that's what pecan trees do. I go to an apple orchard and I see good apple trees producing lots of apples because that's what an apple tree does. It produces good fruit. And I'm a Christian. I'm pursuing holiness and I'm going to be producing holiness because that's what Christians do. And when I abide in Christ and he prunes the things out of me that shouldn't be there, I begin producing more holiness. Now, Skip to verse 8. I'm going to drive this home. By this, this producing of good fruit, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so, and so prove to be my disciples. I love this because if, as we pursue holiness, you know what it really does? It confirms your calling that Christ has really saved you. Because what we understand about the Christian faith is no one can walk in holiness apart from the power of the Spirit. So as a Christian, as you're doing these good works and you're walking in the Spirit and you're glorifying God by bearing much fruit and being pruned by the sinful things in your life and the things that don't glorify God and you lay in bed at night and you're like, wow, I could have never done that. God is doing something great in my life, and, and he's, he's moving me in holiness. He's not moving me in the direction that I was thinking I was going to go. He's not giving me everything I've ever wanted. He's not getting me the cute girl down the street. He's not getting me the new car that I've been saving up for. But he's making me into his image, and that's something I could never do on my own. You know what that does? That's called proof of your salvation. Now, one of the biggest problems is 
we live in a world that doesn't take verse 8 seriously, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And what we do is when people come up to us and say, you know, I just, I've never bore, I don't bear fruit. Like, I don't do things for the glory of God. Well, the Bible says that doing those things proves you are his disciple. And it could be a good heart check, according to what Paul teaches, that we ought to test ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. And so when I'm not bearing good fruit, and I'm not producing holiness, and I'm not living my life to the glory of God, and I'm laying in bed at night, I should have a question that comes into my mind. Am I really saved? Am I really positionally holy if I can't be progressively holy? And we got to be a church in love, in truth, that when people come up and talk to us and say, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I've never lived a life that bears fruit, we must leave room to help them question and test their salvation to see if it's genuine. But too often in our culture, I was born and raised in Texas, so I lived in this culture, people, anytime somebody wants to question their faith, the church is the first one to say, nah, don't do that. You should not question yourself. You should not test whether or not that you're saved or not. But it's right in the face of what the Bible teaches. We ought to test ourselves to be sure that we're in the faith. That's the most loving thing you can do is help someone take the veil off of their head to realize they were never positionally holy to begin with. And the best thing that we can do is allow the Bible to speak for itself and so that when people are living after the Lord, they're proving to be disciples of God. When people aren't living for the Lord, it leaves up opportunity for a gospel conversation. And you can be a tool that God uses because you understand what the Bible says. And you can look at your friend who thinks they've been a Christian their whole life. And you can say, you know, the Bible says that when we bear fruit, it proves that we're disciples. And you may be, you, you have this big concern that you may not be a disciple because you're not bearing fruit. And I think that's a valid concern. Let's see what the Bible says about that. Have you recognized that you're a sinner? Is there a moment in your life where you turn from your sins and you place your trust into Christ? Is there a moment in your life where you realize that what it means to place my trust into Christ is not just to agree that Christ came to die, but it's the fact that I believe that he has received the penalty from my sin and he has clothed me in his righteousness that now before God, I'm now absolved of all of my sin before a holy God? Have you made that decision? No, I didn't. Then my friend, you have an opportunity now to be positionally holy if you would turn from your sins and place your trust in the Christ. Did you see what you did? You let the Bible speak for itself. You preached the gospel to your friend, and they got saved because we didn't allow them to believe something that wasn't true about their own selves. And that's just extrapolating on what the Bible teaches. Because here's what it continues to say. Look at, look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And this is what it means to abide in his love. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I love this. I want to abide in the love of Christ. Doesn't that sound really, really good? Well, Jesus says, if you want to abide in my love, that's called keeping my commandments. That's called walking in holiness. And so the reality of abiding in Christ has everything to do with our lives being progressively sanctified after his image. And so there can be no abiding in Christ if not, I'm not abiding and obeying what he has told me to do through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't do that without the Spirit. That's why I can prove to be the disciple, because I can't do this unless God is working that in me as we are cooperating together. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. He's like, it works the same way. The way that Christ and you relate are the same way that Jesus and God related in the sense that we ought to abide in the love of Christ by obeying him just as Christ abided in the love of God because he obeyed God's commands. Come on, church. Let's look at verse 10. We'll finish up in verse 10 and 11. 
I have negative three minutes, so I'll wrap it up. It says in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. These are two verbs that are both present in the text. Like present, I don't just mean present like there they are. I mean their verb tense is present. It's something that is happening now in the Christian's life. And so as, when it comes to the pursuing and training and holiness, we toil and we strive for it because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially or particularly of those who believe. So we're not talking about universalism right there. We're not saying that Christ came and everyone in the world is going to be saved. We're saying that Christ has come for the salvation of the world, but particularly for those who believe, especially that is applied to those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ. But it's saying we toil and strive when it comes to holiness because our hope is set on the living God. And I want you to look at verse 11 because this is the commitment that your church has to make when it comes to teaching about pursuing holiness. Verse 11, command and teach these things. You recognize that it is the church's responsibility to command and teach that we ought to live in light of progressive holiness. It, it isn't an option. Those are imperative verbs, if you know what that means. They are verbs that are telling you and I exactly what we need to do. And they are command and teach. It is your pastor's job at your church to command that we live in holiness and to teach the church how to do that. Through the power of the... That was lame. Yeah. All right. All right. You heard it here? Okay. If we're going to do that, guys, if we're going to toil and strive for that as a church, and if your pastors, your teachers here are going to command and teach these things, we need to, point number three, we need to stay motivated by the end goal. The only way we're going to do that as a church is if we stay motivated by the end goal, that Christ is coming back, that we're walking toward him in holiness. He is preparing to come and rule and to reign in perfect love and justice and righteousness, that he is coming to get his church. We have to live in light of, of that because I'm going to tell you what, when we don't, you do start getting to the middle of the year and failing. Right? You, you have all these commitments to go to church, to go to life group, to read your Bible, and then things happen in your life, and you get caught up in them, and you lose your motivation to serve the living God because you're focused on other things. And the truth is we must stay motivated by the end goal. As a pastor, it's easy for me to not teach on being holy because there's a lot of other sermons I can teach that'll fill this room right up. You know what this kind of sermon is called? Church clearing sermon. All right, there are people who will not come back because we're teaching people that they must pursue holiness through the power of the Spirit. And that's okay because it's a command. I have to do it and you have to do it. It's just part of what it means for us to be disciples of Christ. And so we're going to stay motivated by keeping the end goal in mind. Do you know, according to another survey, 91% of New Year's resolutions fail. 91%. I told you at the beginning, almost the majority of those, 60-something percent of those, by the second week in January. And there are three reasons in the study that people give up on their resolutions. Number one is that they are losing motivation. Believe that? They're just not motivated anymore. We've got to make it our, our commitment as a church, as, as Christians, that understanding that living a holy life means that I, I'm truly motivated to live for God. That means my schedule revolves around the Lord. 
My life revolves around the Lord. Everything about me is motivated to live in light of, of God and who he is, what he's done, and what he is going to do. You know, the second one is that I'm too busy. Right? And I've said it this way a million times, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that if you're too busy for God, you're just too busy. Right? When I have to begin choosing things in my life over community, over being at church, over being at a life group, over opening my Bible and studying it in the morning, over praying to God, spending time in a relationship with God. If I'm too busy to do those things, I'm just too busy. There is never a reason that we ought to be too busy to stay motivated to live for the Lord. And thirdly, it's a change in priorities. And I know you won't admit it, but when we look at our lives, although we always say that God is our number one priority, when it comes to the way we function, we live as functional agnostics, or at least we, we live with people who function as if God wasn't personal and as if I don't know God and as if God didn't relate to me in any way. Like the things in our life have nothing to do with how God has called me to live my life. And so in a real way, although you say you prioritize God, your priorities in your life show opposite. And those are the reasons why when we get through the middle of the year, we, don't, we seem disinterested in God's will at best. And at worst, we make decisions that are explicitly opposite of what God would have us do. And so my commitment and my hope for you in this church is that we forget these short-term New Year's Eve promises that are going to end in 14 days, and that we would commit to pursue godliness that has benefits not only for now, but for eternity. Are we going to commit to that? Let's do it. Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning is as we look at your word, uh, God, that there are times where your word is, is hard, not in the fact that uh, it's hard to understand, but the reality that often we understand and learn things about your word that we didn't know or the things that we know that we haven't applied. And as we look at our lives, do some introspection, we understand and recognize that uh, in so many ways we probably haven't been pursuing holiness and uh, we understand that your word speaks so much about the way we ought to live to glorify you, the way that we ought to live that is good for us. I mean, God, let us not forget that the reason that our life is all the ways that we never wanted it to be had everything to do with the sin in our lives. And everything that we do want in our lives, everything you would want for our lives has to do with us living by saying no to sin and saying yes to you. God, unfortunately, we can't have a, the good in the world without also saying no to sin and yes to you. So God, help us, even as a church this year, pursue godliness, pursue holiness. Let it uh, permeate in our homes, in our marriages, and raising our children, uh, even in our lives as singles. God, let us use the time we have in our lives and right now that we may put a plan together, that we may pray, God, to uh, do what it takes to commit to living a holy life. God, help us do that as a church, as a community, that we may stir one another to love and good works as we see the day coming near. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.